Let's open up our Bibles to the uh, book of 1 Samuel once again as we arrive here at chapter 25 this evening. Now, chapter 25 gives us the brief, and I really mean brief, we're talking about one verse, gives us the very brief description of the uh, death of Samuel. Uh, Samuel is probably one of the most overlooked heroes in the Old Testament. He, he was, a, he was a, a great man. In fact, you remember that the Lord put him on the same level as Moses. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is praying for the nation of Israel and God's judgment is ready to fall upon them. And the Lord is telling Jeremiah, hey, stop praying. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to forgive. I'm not going to save. I mean, they've, they've just gone a bridge too far, and my judgment is going to come. And the Lord said in Jeremiah 15, even if Moses and Samuel stood before me pleading for these people, I wouldn't help them away with them. Get them out of my sight. And so the Lord, he puts, he puts Samuel right there in the same category as Moses. I mean, these two great guys. And so uh, we tend to overlook the greatness of Samuel. Now, uh, Josephus, the ancient uh, historian, uh, he tells us concerning, uh, concerning Samuel that he was a man whom the Hebrews honored in an extraordinary degree. For that lamentation which the people made, and this during a long time, so his funeral went on for a long time, manifested his virtue and the affection which the people bore for him. Now, he governed and presided over the people alone after the death of Eli, the high priest, for 12 years and then 18 years uh, together with King uh, Saul, or Saul the king. And so uh, this is a guy that's been in public life for well over 30 years. He was faithfully serving the Lord there in the tabernacle in Shiloh. And so he's just a great guy. And so now the nation gathers together and they're gonna say goodbye to this guy. Now this is the guy that had anointed Saul. You remember that he also privately anointed King David. So you have to Think about what that meant for David. Here, here's David on the run. Here's David being pursued by Saul. Here's David being labeled an enemy of the state. He's just, he's seeing no light at the end of the tunnel. And now all of a sudden, uh, his spiritual hero has died. And human nature is, is such that you and I, and we, we probably have all struggled with this on one level or another, where there's been a, a very dominant personality in our life. There's been, there's been somebody that God has brought into our life that we have really leaned into. And we can uh, sort of begin to trust in them more than we really trust in the Lord. And we begin to really base our faith on them and their steadfastness and their faithfulness. But we understand that humans die. All, all humans die. But God's plan for our life does not die. And there might be somebody in your life that you've just so depended on, so leaned into, and now uh, they're no longer here. Well, God is still gonna work, and God's plan for your life is still gonna be moving forward, and David needs to hear that. And David is gonna hear this from a very strange voice uh, that happens in his life. Well, first, before we get to that, we have the funeral in verse one where we're told that then Samuel, he died. And the Israelites, they gathered together and they lamented for him and they buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and he went down into the wilderness of Paran. 
Now, what's being described here in uh, the uh, Holman's uh, Christian Standard Bible says it this way, that Samuel died, uh, all of Israel assembled to mourn him, they buried him by his home in Ramah, David then went down uh, into the wilderness of Paran. So it seems to be indicating that David did indeed uh, go to the funeral. Now, you remember that uh, where everybody is placed at here is that you've got, you've got David in and Gedi. He's down in this wilderness area. And the last time we were together, it was here that Saul repented of sorts. Uh, Saul felt bad. Uh, Saul was confronted. Saul realized that David had an opportunity to take his life, and he didn't take his life. And so David is proving to this man beyond a shadow of a doubt, look, I'm not your enemy. I don't know why you're making me your enemy. I'm not your enemy here. And so Saul was broken. Uh, he was cut to the heart. He even admitted that David was going to be king. And he said, when you become king, make sure that you don't kill uh, all of my offspring. Leave my name alive uh, in the land. And then Saul went back home. So David is in En Gedi. Now Ramah is to the north. You're talking about maybe 20, uh, 30 miles. And it would appear that probably David thought, all right, it's safe enough. Saul repented. It's safe enough for me to at least go to the funeral. And it appears that that's what he did. But then notice after the funeral, though, he ends up going even farther south. He's putting even more miles between he and King Saul. So when he was there at the funeral, did he catch Saul giving him the old stink eye? And he's thinking, I've seen that look before. I believe uh, I need to put some distance between me and the nut job uh, that is on the throne. So that then sets up this scenario where David is well south now, and there is a wealthy man of Maon, and he carries on business in Carmel. And this guy is crazy rich. This guy is one of the wealthiest guys uh, in that part of, of the world. And so we then read of him in verse 3 that the name of this man was Nabal, and the name of his wife uh, was, was Abby and uh, Abigail, and uh, she was a woman of good understanding, beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. So the geography of all of this is you've got these areas of Maon and Carmel just to the northeast of the wilderness of Paran. So uh, David is operating in their neighborhood. Uh, David has got, and probably these numbers are growing. We've already seen it grow from 400 to now 600 guys. So now maybe he's, he's closing in on 800 or 1,000 guys. We don't know. But he's got a large contingency of guys that are, they're trying to eke out their survival in a very barren place. And uh, this wealthy guy is just really right down the street from them. Now, we're told here that this guy's name was Nabal. Now, Nabal means fool. Uh, it, it probably was his nickname. I, I doubt if parents would be that cruel to actually name their child this. So maybe just over time, as his character began to become more publicly known, that people just referred to him as a fool. Now, his wife, uh, she's going to refer to him as a fool as, as well. Now, her name, uh, or we're told in Isaiah concerning the fool, for fools speak foolishly, they make evil plans, 
They practice ungodliness. They spread false teachings about the Lord. They deprive the hungry of food, and they give no water to the thirsty. And that is going to describe this guy uh, to a T. Now, his wife's name was Abigail. Now, Abigail is a very beautiful name, and it means my father is rejoicing or my father uh, was delighted. And so her, her, her daddy was probably so excited on the day of her birth and uh, just, oh, you know, here's, here's my little girl. And oh, I just, I've wanted a girl for so long. And now the Lord's given me a little girl. And he's just rejoicing uh, in, in uh, this, this little girl being given. Now, we're, we're told here uh, that she's, she's kind of the complete package, all right? She's highly intelligent and she's, uh, she's a very beautiful woman. So she's got it going on physically and she's got it going on uh, with intelligence. Now this idiot, we're told, is from the house of Caleb. So it doesn't matter how glorious or how grand your great, great, whatever grandfather was, it's no guarantee that you're gonna find yourself walking in the footsteps of the same faith that they had. And so this guy is um, just a, a, a bad guy from the word go. Now. David believes, and rightfully so, that much of this guy's prosperity is due in large part because of the presence of David and his men. Now, how so? Again, you look at the geography of this, the, the enemy of Israel at this time, and we've already seen David come to the aid of farmers who are already getting ripped off and saved them and drove the Philistines away. The Philistines were the main enemies. And where were the Philistines going? All of their raiding parties were going to the north and going to the east. No raiding parties, as long as David and his men were in this area, were heading into uh, Maon uh, or Carmel. Every time the Philistines mix it up with David, uh, they get their butts kicked. And so they're, they're not, they're not going to mess around with this guy anymore. And so David is down here, and what that does is that produces prosperity uh, for many of these, um, you know, these ranchers and these farmers that were down there. So David is thinking to himself, we are supplying security for all of these guys that are being blessed and, and prospering, and so it would just seem reasonable that some of our needs and the needs of my men would be taken care of by these people. Because if we weren't here, the Philistines would come down and take everything they had. Now, David then writes a letter uh, to Nabal, and he sends 10 guys. Now, he sends 10 guys because he's anticipating that they're gonna be bringing some stuff back with them, and they need to bring enough stuff back to take care of the physical needs of 600 guys. So he, he writes in this letter and he says, you know, Nabal, uh, you know, peace uh, be unto you. I, I, just, I, I just pray that everything is going well and you have to understand that um, we, we have not uh, molested uh, any of your uh, farming operation at all as, as your shepherds have been operating here in our area. Uh, they have been kept safe. Uh, you have not had anything stolen from you. Uh, you, you have been able to enjoy uh, the peace that the, 
my presence and the presence of my guys is, is being afforded to you. And um, in fact, notice that he says in verse 8, he says, you're, you're young men. Uh, they'll tell you. Now, therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes. For we come on a feast day. Now, uh, they're, they're, this is at the time of the shearing of the sheep. This is kind of like Thanksgiving. And uh, it was just that time of the season where, you know, you're just feasting and you're just enjoying the prosperity that your God has brought into your life. And uh, it's just that time where you're reflecting on how blessed you are. And it's in those times that we tend to be a little bit more generous when we think about people that aren't as fortunate as ourselves. And so, hey, during this time of feasting, uh, he says, uh, please give. Now notice, David, David is taking a very uh, low approach here. He's taking a very humble approach. He's not demanding anything from this man at all. I mean, if it wasn't for David and his guys, this guy wouldn't have anything at all. The Phil- it would be with the Philistines. And so he could say, well, the way I see it, maybe you should give me half of your stuff. But he, or 25% or whatever. But he's not even being aggressive at all. He's just saying, now, what, whatever uh, comes to, to your hand, uh, to your servants, and uh, to your son. Now, notice he says, uh, to your son, uh, David. By calling him his son, he really, in that patriarchal culture, he's taking that low, humble approach. I'm, I'm below you, I'm not as great as you, whatever. And so, you know, just humbly, I'm just asking you here uh, for a little help. Now, Nabal is a political loyalist. And he said, who's, who's David? Who is uh, David here? Now, again, I, I'm telling you that, that the way that a man is raised can so affect them in their uh, adult life. And, and you, you show me a, a, a little boy uh, who is raised in a home like David was, where David, you know, he, he wasn't even thought important enough for his father to invite him with the rest of the family when the man of God came to their house uh, for dinner. I mean, imagine, imagine what an insult that would be to you. Your entire family is invited. You got this big wig sitting at your dinner table and the entire family is invited to share in this event, but they don't invite you. I mean, that's, that tells you where you're at in, in the pecking order. And I believe that David was raised where he just he never was quite good enough. And we, we already saw that exchange between he and his oldest brother. You know, what are you doing here? And, you know, why don't you get back to your few, you, the few sheep that you take care of? And so David grew up in a family environment where he never quite made uh, the cut. And when you see men that are raised in that kind of a, a, an event, they, they grow up to be very angry very sensitive, and usually they become hotheads that can just explode. You know, it's like a, when, when you see a, a, a kid that is raised where he watches his mom getting beat up and, and he, he can't do anything about it, usually he grows up to be the kind of guy that when he sees a woman in public that is maybe being treated in a gruff manner by another guy. He just, he just flies off the handle. He just, you know, n- now he is an adult. Now he can do something about it. Now he is going to stand up, uh, you know, for, for those who are weak, right, in, in his presence. And, and this is going to happen to David. David is going to lose it. 
Because this guy is saying, who is David? He's a rebel. He's from the house of Jehovah. He's a nobody. He's a nothing. He's, he's not some great guy. Now, David knows, hey, I have been anointed king. I'm, I'm the next king. And so this guy is not giving him any respect whatsoever at, at all. And so David is, is really going to lose it here. Now, you'll notice that one of, of Nabal's servants, uh, he, sees, he sees what's going down. And he's thinking to himself, uh, my boss is going to get us all killed, right? You just, you, you can't. I mean, David's this warrior. David's this killer. He's got 600 killers out there. And now he's just running his mouth. This is not good. And so he, he finds Abigail. And he says, hey, uh, your husband, um, he's, he's loco. I, and, uh, you know, we, we got to do something about this uh, sister. And so you'll notice Abigail, she puts this Meals on Wheels program together here hastily. And uh, she, she starts, uh, she's going to head, she's going to head uh, David off at, at the pass, uh, hoping to, you know, coddle him so that, you know, his anger will subside. Now, notice, meanwhile, back at the camp of David, notice in verse 21, now David said, surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was, was missed of, of all that belongs to him. And he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male who belongs to him by morning's light. Now, Nabal's a jerk, right? Nabal is a jerk. We'd all agree on that. But being a jerk is not a capital crime, right? Now, maybe he should be punched in the head or something, but you're not going to kill him and all of the males here in his family. And so here is David. He is, he's vowing a massacre. Now, this, is why, this, this tells us that we all have to be on our guard. Now, this, this young man passed a wonderful test the last time we were together. He has the opportunity to kill Saul, but he doesn't do it. And really, who of us would have blamed him? I mean, all of us, if, if he would have killed Saul in chapter 24, I don't think any of us would have a problem with that. I mean, Saul has, has already attempted to kill him how many times? And he's in the process of trying to find him there in the wilderness of the goats, right? And, uh, and, and he's going to kill him. And, and so, I, I mean, any decent attorney would be able to get, you know, David off on a self-defense or stand your ground kind of law, right? So we wouldn't have a problem with it at all. But even in that situation where he was justified to kill another man, he refused to do it. That was a great victory. Now, how many times will you find a follower of Christ having a great victory in their life, and then soon after that great victory, they'll do some knuckle-headed thing, they'll mess up, 
and they'll just ruin a, a wonderful thing that God is trying to do in, in their life. And so here is David having this great time, this great victory, and now all of a sudden, uh, he's, he's gonna do something that is gonna tarnish uh, his, his entire uh, reputation. And, and so he's ready to, ready to kill, kill this guy. Now, you'll notice then uh, that Abigail uh, shows up. And Abigail takes a very different approach uh, than her husband did because she's intelligent, right? She's a, she's a wise individual. And the first thing that she does is that she gets, she gets off and she places herself lower than David. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown tell us that dismounting in the presence of a superior is the highest token of respect that can be given. And it is still an essential act of homage uh, to, to the great. Right? And, and so, you know, here, here she is, she's, she's getting off and, and standing lower than what, what David was, and she's, she's blaming herself. She, you know, hey, I'm, I'm really sorry, you know, I, I didn't see your men were there. If, if, I, if I would have seen them there, I'm telling you, I, I would have loaded them down with blueberry pie and everything else, and, and everything would be fine. Now look, my husband, his name is fool, and you know he's he's kind of a fool here, and and so you know, do you really want to do something? Look, you're going to be king, and she begins to speak to him these these wonderful words of faith. You're you're going to be king, and and God is going to be your defense, and God is going to take care uh, of your enemies. Let's remember who you are. You can't be doing these dumb things that's going to tarnish your reputation. Remember what God has called you to. Remember the promises of God. And so she's just really laying it on David here and uh, trying to turn him from what is gonna be uh, an obvious disaster. Now, I think it's interesting that Eugene Peterson says, there is nothing more common in spiritual life than starting out right and then going wrong. We start out with enthusiasm and promise, surging with energy and purity of heart, and then somewhere along the line, we're corrupted and spoiled. St. Paul coined the term shipwrecks to describe these episodes. The remains of shipwrecks are everywhere to be seen, and most tragically, among Christians. Not one of us is exempt. Someone offends us, crosses us, doesn't give us what we want. Our self-importance flares up and we're off to do something about it. Armed with righteous indignation, wrapped up in ourselves, we're angry because of our self-defined identity is violated. And so here's David, he is just ticked off. I have done everything for this guy. This guy is wealthy because of me. And he dares to say, who am I? Well, we're gonna see about that. Now you'll notice in verse 29 that she wisely says to him, look, your life, your life is bound up with the living with the Lord. Your life is bound up with God. God is gonna take care of you. This is, this is gonna turn out just fine. You just trust the Lord. What happens, you become king, and now you have in your past this, this massacre of innocent people. 
Well, that's not going to look good on the resume. So just let God uh, fight your battles. And of course, David recognizes the wisdom uh, of of her words here. Notice in verse 33, uh, he says to her, blessed is your advice and blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself uh, with my own uh, hands. So he, he comes uh, to the realization, you're right, look, the Bible tells us the wrath of man, the anger of man does not fulfill the will of God. I think that all of us can look back at episodes in our life where we were angry, where we took offense, where we lashed out, and we realized that we missed God. And I just should have sat back, chilled out, prayed about it, and let God be my defense because God will defend us because our life is bound up with him. If you and I get into a habit of constantly defending ourselves, then God's gonna let us defend ourselves and he's not gonna defend us. And I'm telling you, you're gonna want the Lord to be your defense and he's gonna, be a far be- he's gonna do a far better job of it than what you're able uh, to do here. Now, you'll notice then that, that Nabal, this fool, uh, he, he's, he's drunk, he's, he's fe- feasting. Now, the next day, now this is an important lesson. Never try and talk sense into a drunk, right? Just don't do it. You know, you, you run into somebody that's inebriated, don't waste your breath. They're not gonna remember, they're not logical, they're not reasonable, they're not able to function correctly mentally, and so just, just wait for the next day. Just get a cup of coffee in them and uh, talk to them after they, they sober up. So she waits until the next day, and she says, dude, you do not know how close you came uh, to losing your life. And you'll, you'll notice there that he, he stroked out. I mean, it was such a shock to him system, his system uh, that he stroked out, and 10 days later, uh, he died. Nabal is a picture of an unbeliever. Your life as a believer, as well as the life of an unbeliever, all of our lives hang by a thread. But you, as a follower of the Lord, you know that. You understand it. You know that your next breath is in the hand of God. You understand that at any moment, the Lord can call you and I home. Unbelievers don't know that. And, and so unbelievers, like Nabal, they're out there feasting, woohoo! you know, and they're getting all loaded and blasted and partying and all of, all of this stuff, and they don't understand that they hang by a thread. This guy is a picture of an unbeliever. That's why the unbelievers, hey, let's eat, let's drink, let's be merry, because tomorrow... Well, you know, you might die today, right? And so this guy ended up uh, passing away. Now, this is crazy to me. You then notice that David, I don't know how long he waited, but it appears that he doesn't wait for Nabal to assume room temperature here, uh, that he sends a marriage proposal. Now, remember, she's hubba hubba, right? She's got good looks and she's a smart gal. She's intelligent. I'm sure David is thinking, wow, with a woman like that at my side, where, where might I, I end up? And so he sends a marriage proposal. Now, notice 
She's pretty excited about this deal as well. Notice verse 42, we're told, so uh, Abigail, she rose in haste, right? Woo, okay, the next king wants to be married to me. So she rose in haste. She rode on a donkey, attended by five of her maidens. And she followed the messengers of David, and she became his wife. And oh boy, look at what happens. Then David, he also took Ahinoam of Jezreel. And so both of them were his wife. Now he's got a wife back home. She's a good girl. So far, now we're going to see, she's going to become a very bitter uh, woman. Uh, but at this point, she loves David. She saved David's life. What in the world is this guy doing uh, collecting wives? And so David ends up now, both of them were his wives, uh, but Saul then, now notice Michael, this is, this is David's first wife, his daughter. What a, what a nasty, nasty old man Saul was. And so he took Michael, his daughter, David's wife, and uh, gave her to Palti, who was the son of Laish, uh, who was from uh, Galam. Now, you know, one thing we have to ask ourselves, is, it, is, this, really, is this really a good time uh, to be collecting wives for David? I mean, is this really a good time uh, for this guy to be thinking about uh, getting married? I mean, he's, he's, he's on the run, right? He's an enemy of the state. Now, what, what's gonna be interesting is that polygamy is never, it is never God's best. It certainly is not a part of God's original design. God's original design is one man, one woman living together until death uh, does them part. Uh, and every time in the scripture that we see polygamy entering the picture, and if you, if you will read the story of David carefully, Every time he messes up in this area of his life, difficulty comes right into his life, right on the heels of it. And we're going we're gonna to find difficulty coming into his life here uh, next time we're together in chapter uh, 26. Look, marriage is a big deal. Marriage, it, it alters the destiny of your life. You know, if you marry this person, your life is going to go in this direction. You marry this person, well, your life is going to go in this way. You marry a different person, your life is going to go in an entirely different direction. I mean, it is life-altering. And we just don't give enough thought to that. We think they're attractive or they got money or whatever, and so, hey, let's just go with them. We don't really uh, dig down deep to find out what will be the ramifications of this personality and this, this family background. What, is, what kind of bearing? You know, Sherry and I, we, we, I, I should say I had no business um, marrying her when, when I, I did. And uh, we talk about this all the time. I mean, God was so gracious to us. I mean, and we learned so many important lessons, but, but I had a Bible degree, you know, big hairy deal. I mean, you got a Bible degree. I didn't have a career. I didn't have any savings. I didn't know where we were gonna live. I mean, I, my ducks were as far as you could get from being in a row, and I had no business marrying her. And as a result of that, I led her into poverty. And we were so poor for so many years. Now, as I say, 
we make our choices and God works in our life and God develops us and God teaches us his lessons and we learn some very valuable lessons. But I wish I didn't have to learn them through those painful events that were there in, in our life. And so here is David. He should have just thought, is this the time? Do I need to drag this young lady into this disaster um, that is, is my life? Now, I want you to think about this. Now, while uh, uh, G. Campbell Morgan tells us that while it's perfectly true that we have no right to measure David by the standards of our own time, it is equally clear that at this point, uh, we have evidence of weakness that would lead him into the most terrible sin of his life and cause him the greatest difficulty and the acutest suffering. Have you ever found yourself in the midst of a moral collapse? Have you ever found yourself where you really shot yourself in your own foot and you're able to look back and you're able to see that, you know, the, the seedbed of this disaster, the seedbed of this great collapse that has taken place in my life, I can go back 20 years, I can go back 25 years, I can go back many years when I began to make choices for myself that I really should have crucified, choices for myself that I really should have denied myself. Now David Firth, he tells us this, and, and I close with this, such a marriage was political more than anything else. As David knew, he needed support from the Calebites, which marrying into the clan could ensure. For Abigail, the marriage promised security, linking her clan to the nation's future king. Marriage to Abigail meant David could establish influential links in the region. Marriage to Ahinoam achieved this with another achieved this with another important town. But yet, you see, it all points to a lack of trust. It all points to just a lack. I don't know if God can really take care of me. I don't know if, if I can really trust God for my security. I don't know if I can trust God for my happiness. Is, is God really interested in making me as happy as I want to be? I'm just not sure about that. And we have these battles that go on in our mind where we're just always fighting between our will and the will of the Lord. But what we see over and over again, that God's will for your life is a mind-blowing will. God's desire is to bless you. God's desire is to give you an abundant life, but not just an abundant life here, a mind-blowing life in the eternal realm that is to come. And we just need to pray that God would be giving us the faith to trust him for the various issues of our life and to recognize that God is at work and God has got a glorious plan for us through all of eternity. And so may the Lord give us hearts that are surrendered to him. Lord, do your will. Lord, help me to crucify those things in my life that you don't want in my life. Help me to put to death those things that will destroy the very, Thing that you're trying to bring about in me. So we need to pray that God would bless us with great faith tonight. And Father, we would ask that as we leave here tonight that we would take a, um, take a page out of the life of David on what not to do, Lord. That we would be found just leaning hard into you 
that not allowing our emotions, not allowing our anger, not allowing our offense to lead us into places that would really dishonor and poorly represent you. And Father, as, as we're reading the story of this man that just had such a struggle with that, that male part of his life, that, Lord, that we would understand that these moral collapses that will can potentially come upon us that they just they just brew they just slowly cook on that back burner of our mind over time and eventually we are overtaken by these weaknesses lord father i pray for your people that wherever the weakness might be in their life that father you'd give them victory that there would come to us just a desire to just crucify that which is an offense to you. Lord, help us to ruthlessly throw down whatever is going on in our life that would rob us of your best. Oh, Father, give us a desire to please you with our entire being. For we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.